Corinthians as we continue in that great epistle of Paul and ultimately by the hand of the Holy Spirit. There is, I suppose, at all times and in every generation, a perpetual battle for the truth of the gospel. The content of the gospel, yes, and even more generally, perhaps, what does it mean to be a Christian? Or put another way, how does one know whether or not one is saved, whether one is in the kingdom of heaven or not. What is the way there? What does it look like to be a follower of Christ? Is it even necessary to be a follower of Christ? There's great confusion about these things, these issues in contemporary evangelical Christianity and many, I think, from a heart's desire to preserve the doctrine of justification by faith alone would answer that question by saying only believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And that, of course, is true. Those are the words of the Apostle Paul and Silas to the Philippian jailer. We know that adding works to faith is a false gospel. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. But what does it mean to believe? Is it enough to merely acknowledge the facts as the Bible presents them? Is it enough to tip, tip your hat to the man on the cross? To acknowledge the facts about sin and the facts about Jesus, to acknowledge one's need in some sense. James says this, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. James is echoing some of the scariest words in the Bible, the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter seven, where Jesus said, many will say to me in that day, looking forward to the day of judgment, many will say to me in that day, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and didn't we do that? And I will say to them in that day, depart from me, I never knew you. You who practice, and the idea is as your pattern of life, lawlessness. James Montgomery Boyce said this, quote, the idea, where did it come from? That one can be a Christian without being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. It reduces the gospel to 
the mere fact of Christ having died for sinners requires only that they acknowledge this by the barest intellectual assent and then it assures them of their eternal security when they may very well not be born again. This view bends faith beyond recognition and it promises a false peace to thousands who have given verbal assent to this reductionistic Christianity but are not truly in God's family, end quote. Beloved, listen, Christ is Lord and discipleship is required. No one can be confident of saving faith simply because he has walked an aisle or she has signed a commitment card or somehow perhaps been baptized. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be saved? Our text this morning answers this question clearly and concisely. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this regarding Philippians 2, 12, and 13, that is one of the most perfect summaries of the Christian life to be found anywhere. The title of this message is Salvation Works. When God saves a person, it is evident in the way that they live. I mentioned last week that the dominant and driving motivation of the, Apostles Paul, the Apostle Paul's life was simply this. He had as his singular ambition to be pleasing to Christ in everything. To be saved is to be dominated by that motivation. It's what captivated him. It's what occupied his mind. Pleasing Christ motivated all of his decisions. It drove all of his actions. It should be the very thing that characterizes our motivations and drives our actions. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9, Paul says, Therefore we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, that is to say whether in this body or in the next life, to be pleasing to him. I like the way the English Standard Version puts it. It's a little more hokey perhaps, but it gets it across. He says, whether we're at home or away, we have this aim. That's simple enough. We have this aim. This is what I'm drawn back on. This is the bullseye of my life, to please him. 1 Thessalonians 4.1, brothers, we ask and we urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ that just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you also are doing, that you do so more and more. Colossians 1.10, Paul tells the Colossians that he wants them to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You see, when God saves someone, he brings them into relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ so that ultimately you would bear the very stamp, the very image, the very likeness of the one who saved you. That's what brings God pleasure. And this, in the broadest sense, is what God is seeking to accomplish in your life. This is what he wants from you. The likeness of his son. 
Romans 8, 28 and 29. For we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Well, what is that purpose? For those whom he foreknew, he predestined, that means there's a destination set out in advance, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That's God's goal with your life and mine, if you are in Christ here this morning, that you would be like Christ. And one thing that comes clearly through this text that we'll look at this morning is simply this, that God is a worker. God has not retired. God is not on vacation. God is not leaning on his shovel. God is a worker, and day by day he is laboring in your life to bring you to the likeness of his son. He has saved you through the work of his son. He is saving you through the work of his son and sanctifying grace. And he will in the end, finally and fully, save you and deliver you and glorify you. That is the great promise of the gospel that God is a worker. And in that work, salvation is not simply unto heaven, it is not simply from eternal judgment, but salvation is from the power and the pollution of sin. And so you can think of it this way, that you have been saved unto righteousness. You have been saved unto Christ-likeness. We don't tend to think of salvation that way. We think of it primarily as escape from judgment. But God's ideal, God's plan, God's purpose, what God will in fact bring to pass in your life if you are a follower of Christ, is he will bring you one day, finally, from the presence of sin altogether, and he will bring you into the likeness of his son. So this morning as we come to this text, I want to show you two fundamental aspects of living a life that brings God pleasure. How do you live a life that brings God pleasure? Paul will show us that it boils down essentially to two things. One, it's the work of God in the life of his people, and it is what you, in light of that work, do yourself. The work of God in the lives of his people and what we in return, in response, do in working out our own salvation. Look at verse 12 with me. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We're going to hang these two verses on two branches this morning, one of them being the commandment, which is found in verse 12, and secondly, the enablement, which is found in verse 13. The commandment and the enablement. Let's look at the commandment first. That is to work out your own salvation. 
This is what Paul wants the Philippians to do. This is what he's calling them to do. The focus, the spotlight, if you will, initially in verse 12 is on the Philippians directly. This is the part that they play. This is the part that you and I play. This is not God's part. This is your part. You have something to do. It's like your lawn. If you do not get out to mow it, it will not be mown. And it is like the laundry. The pile will never make its way into the washer unless you get up and put your hands on the pile and move in the direction of the washing machine. God has something for you to do in your spiritual life. I treasure the reality that so many in here love the sovereign majesty and the power of Christ. There's a high appreciation in this place for him and his might and his work in our midst. We treasure the reality that salvation is of the Lord. Yes, we do. But we need to beware of an unrighteous passivity that settles into the hearts of some who get Many things right in their theology, but they miss this fact that there is something in this life for you to do. Look at verse 12 again. He tells us you are to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, before we get to that commandment, I want to give you three things in the preceding words in verse 12. They're minor points perhaps, but they are very important and worth noting. Number one, look at the tender affection of the Apostle Paul when he says, so then, my beloved. He has just considered one of the most profound realities in all of Scripture. He has pointed us to the humility of Christ and then how God, in response to the humble crosswork of Christ, the obedience of the suffering servant, then what? Raised him up, exalted him, he ascended into heaven, seated him at his right hand to the highest place with the highest name. And the next two words are, so then. In light of that reality, my beloved, this is consistent with the warmth that the rest of the letter really expresses. The Philippians and Paul have a very warm relationship. And this, I just think it's important for us to get this, A, that this comes on the heels of, of some context, and B, that this commandment doesn't come down thundering from above. It comes from underneath and it comes by way of encouragement. It comes as a, as a, if you will, a glad appeal. Philippians, I know you understand all that I've said, at least to the extent that we as, as Christians can understand the, the vast realities of those early verses in Chapter 2, I know that in light of all of that, your whole heart is to worship this risen and exalted Christ. And he says, look, I want to appeal to you. And he knows, he knows full well that they will hear him. That's the second thing I would bring out here is the present obedience, the concern for obedience in the Philippians. Look at it. So then, my beloved, just as you have always, what? Obeyed not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Paul says, look, you're not like those, those wicked slaves who only obey when the, when, the, 
when the boss is around, when the master is watching. No, you've been a faithful church. You're not perfect. That's not what he means by this. You've always obeyed. He's not saying that they were sinless. He's simply saying that it has been the pattern of their life to have a concern for obedience, and they have been vigilant about applying the truth of the word of God to their lives. You see, following Christ, obeying Christ, honoring Christ, submitting to Christ is just part and parcel of the Christian life. Of course the Philippians have been applying the truth. Of course they've been obedient. That's just the nature of a converted heart. What does John say? We have his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome, right? We treasure the commandment of God. We delight in his statutes. We rejoice to observe his ordinances. So it's written in tender affection. The Philippians had this concern for obedience, and I I want you to note what may not show up in your Bible so much if you have a New American Standard anyway, and that is the reflexive pronoun there when he says, work out your salvation. I think it's better put, if you have the ESV, you will see it, or the New King James or the King James. Many other translations do bring this out. Literally, that would read this way, work out your own salvation. It is is more emphatic than simply work out your salvation. It is work it out, the one that belongs to you. You work that out. Remember that Paul is apart from the Philippians. He is bound in chains and he is imprisoned in Rome. And it's possible that the Philippians had done what perhaps you've done. I know I have, many of us have. That we have a tendency to look to those people who taught us the truth, those people who have been role models for us, those people who have have instilled good things in us. And perhaps the Apostle Paul in the Philippians' estimation has gotten a bit too high, too lofty. Every child must be weaned from its mother. Every bird, every bird must be booted from the nest. And I think that's what Paul is doing here. Every disciple must become like his teacher. And Paul, in effect, is saying to them, I want you to live a life of obedience, just as you have been, but I want you to do it all the more, to abound still more and more, particularly since I'm not there. You don't remember Paul wanted to come to them and he didn't want them thinking that somehow Paul Paul was necessary for them to live out their Christian life. Paul, in effect, is saying, look, you're not hindered by my chains. Even though I'm away from you, especially because I'm away from you, I want you to live out your faith before your God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You have salvation. You have the word You have the same spirit dwelling in you that dwells in me. He's mightily working in you, and I want you to prove it out. If I can quote Lloyd-Jones again, quote, the Christian life is something that we have as a possession within us. And though every teacher and preacher were silenced and every instructor banished, it would not ultimately matter. Now listen, preachers and teachers are a gift of God to the church. We know that 
from Ephesians 4, among other passages. But brother and sister, we need to be aware. We need to be cautious. We need to be careful of an unhelpful dependence upon other men. We need to be aware of being attached at the hip to anyone other than Jesus. I have watched it time and time and time again, the disillusionment that comes when someone has attached their wagon to another man's life only to find that man apostate in the end and therefore their whole world is shaken. Listen, Jesus Christ alone is the one to whom we owe loyalty. He alone is the one to whom we attach our wagon. Somebody said it well, the best of men are men at best. Paul says, look, Philippians, you have a a living relationship with the same Lord, the same God who mightily works in me, works in you. I want you to rely on him. I want you to do the things that are pleasing to him, particularly in my absence. Paul is weaning the Philippians off of himself and on to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look back at the text. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's the commandment. He tells them what they're to do and the attitude with which they're to do it. This is your part. This is my part. This is what you and I are to do. Work out, Paul says, your salvation. Now, it's easy for us, it would be easy for us to misunderstand what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He is not saying, you'll note, work for your salvation. He is, he is not saying, look, work at your salvation, that you might bring it somehow to some kind of completion and therefore God would finally in the end accept you. No, no, no. He is not telling us that we can in any way, shape, or form work hard enough or long enough to attain to right standing before God. And that is the great mistake. That is the great hope of so many who are unbelieving in Christ. Is that somehow God in the end will look at their average achievement in this life. Perhaps it was a hair better than someone else. And certainly it was better than Adolf Hitler. And certainly it was better than Idi Amin. And certainly we were not like Jeffrey Dahmer. And therefore God will say, "Uh, it's not perfect, but come on in. The standard for eternal life is absolute moral perfection. There cannot be one stain of sin anywhere in your life. And all of us, if we face the reality of that, would gulp and acknowledge that we are not entering into the kingdom of heaven. Except that what? God has provided a way for your sins to be washed and cleansed through the blood of his son his sacrifice on the cross. And in Christ, we also find the righteousness, the perfect righteousness that is necessary to enter into heaven. And all of that comes to us by way of faith when Christ saves us. Listen, salvation is not a reward for the righteous. 
It is not a wage for the worker. It is a gift to the guilty. And the Bible could not be clearer about this. Romans 3.20, by works of the law, that is by good works, no flesh will be justified, made righteous, considered righteous in his sight. None. No person. Galatians 2.16, for we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we also have believed in Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Three times in a verse. Paul emphasizes it. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, what? Not as a result of works that no one should boast. No man will ever be able to look at God and say that he has added anything to the salvation that is provided by God on the basis of faith and faith alone. Look over with me at Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9. Here's Paul's personal testimony. We will get here soon enough, but just to see that Paul cannot be saying that what we're to do is to work for our salvation. We're to attain righteousness. No, Paul says this, I want to be found in him, that is Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. That's impossible. Paul says, I'm not looking to myself to qualify myself for heaven. I look to Christ. I want the righteousness which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes, note this, from God on the basis of faith. You see, this is the point. There is nothing that any one of us can do to warrant the forgiveness of sins. There's nothing any of us can do to merit acceptance with God. Salvation is of the Lord. He pays the bill in full through the blood of his son or he pays the bill not at all. And you may as well try to drain the ocean dry or lasso the stars as rely upon your own goodness to gain favor with God. Jesus put it this way, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners unto repentance. Sinners are the only people that Jesus saves. And none will enter in who cannot acknowledge their need. That's the whole point of the Beatitudes, isn't it? Blessed are the poor in spirit, the impoverished. They just realize my pockets are empty, spiritually speaking. I got nothing to offer. It's those who mourn over sin. It's those who hunger and thirst for a righteousness which they do not have on their own, but which God will, in fact, supply. That's his promise. And that's a glorious truth. You see that we, we are sin-bent and we are broken and we come to him guilty and unworthy and undeserving and we receive a gift that we do not deserve. But here, here is the truth of this passage. He does not leave us there. That's not the end of the exchange. God is still up to something in your life. You remember 
don't you? <laughs> I hope you do. You flip back to the left one page and you find in chapter 1 and verse 6 this very confident statement of the Apostle Paul. He says, I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it, complete it, mature it until the day of Christ Jesus. You see, God began a good work in you. He is the only one who is good, and he begins this good work. It's speaking of salvation. It's referring to that great regenerating work of God where you were given a new life. You remember, brother and sister, that you were once what? Like them, you were, you were dead in trespasses and sins. You had no capacity to recommend yourself to God whatsoever. But God made us alive together with Christ. We became new creatures in Christ through faith in Christ. And the point is that, that it wasn't just a, a, minor, a minor repair job. It wasn't just a Bondo fix to the old 64 out back or whenever you were born. <laughs> Paul is not writing here about some superficial spit shine and a little bit of wax. It, no, it's this internal work that God began. It's called good and he began that work in us from the inside out. It's a radical, if you will, conversion. He traded leather for vinyl. He gave us disc brakes in the place of the old drums. He gave us coilovers instead of leaf springs. And he gave us fuel injection for, for carburetors. And ladies, if you're not following with this, it's okay. You can ask your husband at home. But the guys need illustrations too. Look, Jesus doesn't come into your life to give you a simple tune-up, to give you some new, fresh plugs, to sort of tweak the timing a bit. No, he comes in and it is a total swap. He trades out that sputtering, gas-guzzling, faltering, won't-start, old beater of an engine, and he trades it out for a supercharged, spiritually-powered engine. And this is what the Bible means, in essence, when it, when it talks about the fact that we have received a new heart, a heart of flesh for that heart of stone. He has placed a new spirit within us, and he's given us his spirit. And brother and sister, that changes everything. You are not the jalopy you once were. You are not a rust bucket in the backyard. You're not collecting rats in the carburetor and spiders in the old hinges. Christ has made you new. You see, he's given you new affections for Christ where there used to be affection only for self. And he has given you affections for truth where your mind was once confused and 
given to error and he has given you affection for obedience instead of sin and good instead of evil and now others are, are the focal point of your life. It's not just satisfying me, 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 but no, it's, it's God and it's others. You've been transformed, you've been converted to the uttermost and that God did that mighty work in the Philippians and in you, I can confidently say in you, I have seen it. When God does that work, it is audible by the things that come out of your, your mouth. And it is, it is visible by the way you lead your life. And it is utterly and absolutely undeniable that when God gets a hold of a life and lives within a person, that person is radically changed. Yes? And what is Paul saying here if I can stay with the same metaphor, he is saying, look, you are not a garage queen. Start it up and get out. Go for a drive. He predestined you in his love. He regenerated you by his power. He justified you as a gift of his grace. And he is sanctifying you and And you need to buckle up and turn the key and get your foot off the brake and put it in gear. Brother, sister, you need to pull out of the garage and you need to lay some spiritual rubber. Show us what's under the hood. That's what he's saying. You drive. This isn't let go and let God. You're not being chauffeured in the Christian life. You're not still bound in your car seat, facing back and gumming Cheerios. If you're in Christ, you have that life working within you. And he says, live it. You were made to go. Go. You see, when he says work out your salvation with fear and trembling, the the idea really is that you would carry that salvation out to its logical end. And so to hang with the metaphor of the car again, do you see that you don't put something like that in the hands of a 16-year-old? They couldn't handle it. But in Christ, he's put you behind the wheel and he said, look, drive. Drive that thing. Live that life. Bear it out. Quit driving like an old lady and put your foot in it. Okay, an old man. My point in that was that older ladies are wise. You see, that's, that's all. That's what he wants you to do. He wants you to rev it up. Don't sit there in neutral. Live the life that God made you to live. And I'm not talking about living a life like you hear on the TV all the time, that that life of possibility. And I'm saying live out the Christian life. Follow Christ. Be earnest in seeking to, 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 to slay sin and to put on righteousness and to live a life that demonstrates the fact that God has in fact done something in you. So many of us want to hide in the garage. It's illogical. And it denies God the glory he deserves.
I see people at times buy these cars on those auction shows. I have a friend. He's got, he's got a rack in his garage with multiple cars on it, and every one of them you could lick off any surface on that vehicle. And I'm ever saying to him, why do you own them? Who cares? Drive the thing. In fact, I'll drive them for you. Anyway. If I could summarize it this way in much more theological terminology, he has regenerated you, giving you new life. He did that for you by himself as an act of his grace. And beyond that, he justified you, forgiving all of your sins and crediting the righteousness of his son to your life that you might be qualified for heaven. And now he's calling you to do something in addition to all that he is doing, and that is to be sanctified, to be growing in sanctification. He is making you more like Christ day by day. That is true, but here's, here's the reality. As, as one man put it, God is up to something. He's up to something good, but you've got to get involved. You've got to get involved. That's the picture of sanctification in the New Testament. You're engaged in that work. And what Paul is calling us to essentially is this, be in practice what you are in position. You are holy in Christ, live holy in Christ. He wants you to motor forward, if you will, in spiritual progress. And he wants us to do it with a proper spirit. Not of self-reliance, not of self-sufficiency, not of casual indifference, not of some sort of grumbling resignation, but he says it right there, that you would work out your salvation with what? With fear and trembling. That is to say with a heart of worship. You've got an eye towards the Christ who saved you and that motivates you, it drives you, your love for him, your respect for him, your reverence for him. He is high and lifted up and of high opinion in your life. You want to Please him with your life, and therefore you live it out. There is in your soul this gripping fear and lofty regard for God. You don't want to displease him, but instead you think about Christ. You're conscious of him. You want every area of your life to be brought under his lordship so that he might be glorified in you. We tremble at his word. We care about the way he lives. Steve Lawson, as only Steve Lawson can, quote, God is not a kindly spiritual grandfather sitting in the sky. God is not a teddy bear. God is not a kitten. God is a lion who loves us. But his love does not mean that we are at liberty to domesticate him. It's a great statement. We are grateful to God, aren't we, for so great a salvation? We are grateful, and therefore we live as grateful children. And really, brothers and sisters, it couldn't be any other way. In light of all that we've been studying in chapter 2, this Christ who existed in the form of God and did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, the one who emptied himself and took on the form of a slave and was made in the likeness of men, 
and he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, how can you look to him and not want to serve him? How can, you, how can your heart be so hard that there is not a, a softness towards him that longs to come under and to follow? Jesus characterized salvation this way. He said, if any man would be my disciple, let him what? What do we do? What is it? How do you do it? Let him what? Deny himself. Be done with serving yourself. It isn't about you. It's about Christ. Take up your cross. Be ready at any point to surrender yourself on his behalf and to follow him, to put your feet where he stepped, to live after him. You see, you can't have any grasp of the greatness of Christ and the greatness of salvation and be the recipient of all of that and still live in some sort of casual indifference, some sort of ho-hum attitude toward the Christian life. You see, in salvation, Christ becomes utterly captivating. And salvation changes everything about your life, your affections, your motivations, your direction in life. The indwelling spirit performs that work in Christ's people. You've been called with a holy calling Therefore, lead a holy life. And I can't say that without feeling the weight of it. Can you? How are you going to do this? How are we going to do this? How are we going to work it out? Well, Paul answers the question. Because he not only gave us a commandment, he gives us insight into the enablement. That's our second point for the morning, our, uh, the enablement. Uh, he's taking f- this point that, that, that uh, Christ has worked in the life of his people. And he brings about this wonderful and encouraging reality that, that God not only works uh, on us, but he works within us so that that work might be borne out by us. That's why the Bible refers to it so often as fruit. Look with me at verse 13. The end of verse 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for, here's the reason why, because it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now that is a very simple sentence. You ever looked at that before? There isn't a word in there except maybe pleasure that a first or a second grader couldn't spell. It is one of the simplest sentences in the Bible, and yet it is one of the most profound and unsearchable and inexplicable realities of the Christian life. Who lives your Christian life, you or God? Yes. Who who pursues ever-increasing holiness in the life, you or God? Whose responsibility is it? Yes. And you say, I can't understand. Is it God or is it me? Just make it clear. This is as clear as it gets. Yes. It is you and it is him. You see, apart from Christ, Paul says, I can do nothing. And yet with him, Paul says, I can do all things. Through Christ who strengthens me. Jesus illustrated this better than all as we might expect, but turn over to John chapter 15. 
Let's pick up in verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you. Note this, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. There it is. We can do nothing apart from him. I am the vine, Jesus says, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them, and they are cast into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Who bears the fruit? You do. How do you bear fruit? By abiding in the vine. You see, you must take part in the rich sap of the vine if you were to produce the fruit that God intends you to produce. And he, he takes glory in what is produced because ultimately it is the end result of his working through the vine. A lamp does not work unless it is plugged into the circuit. That motor, no matter how new and how reliable, will never work apart from fuel and the energy to turn those pistons. You cannot produce fruit apart from Christ. And so the logic is simply this. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's a must. Why? Well, it's an obvious conclusion to the reality that God is the one working in you, and therefore you will work. In fact, the very verb tense here signifies that this is a continuous ongoing work on God's part. So the, the, the rationale is it's an ongoing work on his part toward our sanctification that will produce ultimately ongoing effort on our part toward the same end. God is relentlessly working to bring about our spiritual maturity. He never stops laboring toward this end. And that's why Lloyd-Jones says this is a snapshot of what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who is consistently, not perfectly, consistently desiring what is right and good and working toward that end. They're working out the work of God in their life. In fact, you'll note that the work is both at the level of our desires as well as our diligence, isn't it? Notice his work in you is both, uh, it's, not, it's not just to work, but it's also to will. Do you see that? Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Once you've been made a Christian, now you're in a position, you have righteous longings and you have the power of God within you by the indwelling spirit to actually live out those longings and live a life of obedience and the pursuit of discipleship to Christ. It's amazing when you think about it. Remember when Paul said, there is nothing good that dwells in me. Paul understood this reality very well, and yet Paul did a lot of good things. How did he do it? He did it by the power that mightily worked within him. Get this, every, every desire for righteousness, every holy aspiration, 
Every longing for what is good, every good thing you do is ultimately a result of the work that God is working in me. Praise God for his goodness. This, beloved, is why it's unthinkable that someone considers themselves a Christian and yet they have no heart for obedience. It's not possible that their life wouldn't be oriented toward Christ. And that debate in, in some circles as to whether Lord, uh, whether Jesus Christ must be Lord of one's life, it, it's just silly in the end. It, it, do you understand? Can you see how this text itself would make it apparent that it's impossible for it to be any other way? For one to profess Christ and yet live his life in disregard for the will of God is, is simply to make himself a liar. John said that, if we have fellowship with him or we claim to have fellowship with him and yet we walk in the darkness, we're lying and we do not practice the truth. John MacArthur put it this way in his book, The Gospel According to Jesus. He says, Jesus is Lord and those who refuse him as Lord cannot use him as Savior. Everyone who receives him must surrender to his authority to say we receive Christ when in fact we, we reject his right to reign over us is utter absurdity. It is a futile attempt to hold on to sin with one hand and take Jesus in the other. And how many are living like that in this day? Still hoping that a little cheap paint job on the outside will be enough to, to fool God. I ask you, is it possible to have God both willing and working in you his sanctifying grace and yet live like the devil? Is that even possible? Is it possible that, that what we read in Romans 6, that we were set free from bondage to sin, that we were, we were brought out from under the lordship of Satan, out from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his marvelous light, under enslavement, glorious enslavement to righteousness under Christ alone. Could all of that be true and yet a man live in disregard for obedience to Jesus, our Lord? Beloved, light has no fellowship with darkness and neither Christ with the devil. And we have the Spirit of God, and again, you've grown up around his name, and you probably don't think about it much, but he is the Spirit of what? Holiness. And he is the Spirit of truth. And that Spirit dwelling in you is bound to produce, as he animates your Christian life, he is bound to produce both holiness and a love of the truth he is going to give us holy desires and righteous longings and he will empower us to live godly in this present age. 
That's why the Bible teaches that, that, that the Christian life is one filled with the fruit of that selfsame spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, all of those things jam-packed into the life of a believer so that they are characteristic. Again, perfectly, no, but significantly, yes, consistently, yes, it is the overarching outward demonstration and attitude of the Christian to be like that. Paul will get to this next week, but a life filled with bitterness and complaint. (laughs) A constant sense of entitlement is not characteristic of the life of Christ, and yet that is characteristic of the life of this age. That is for sure. Brothers and sisters, these things are the very birthmark of the believer that demonstrates that we are born of God and that he is working in us by his spirit. And at one level, as I said, this is very simple conceptually, and yet it's utterly insearchable in the inner workings of it all. We are working out what he is continuously working in. And much of God's work is imperceptible, isn't it, in our lives. In our experience, if your experience is anything like mine, it's not what you want it to be. It's in fits and starts. It's in bits and pieces. And I praise God that I've gotten old enough now to look back with with a decade view and been able to say, lo and behold, Lord, by your mercy, you have done something in my life. I am not the man I was at 18. Don't get your nose stuck in your belly button. God hasn't fixed me yet. Not, I prayed to him yesterday that I'd be like Jesus. I heard your message and I prayed that he would make me like Jesus. I woke up this morning and lo and behold, I'm not yet, right? We know this. And you might say, Dave, why would you leave me there? I'm not gonna leave you there because the text doesn't leave you there. Paul wants you to be encouraged. He wants you to be lifted up. He wants wants your head high with joy, filled with gratitude to God that though we are not perfect and we are doing this in fits and starts, the fact is we are doing it and we see the evidence of God in our lives, yes, in fits and starts, but he's doing it and beloved, he will do it. He will complete what he has started in you. There are no ifs, ands, or buts about it. He will do it. And still he calls you to buckle up and drive. We cannot do it on our own. And of that, I assume you're wide awake. You cannot pull yourself up by your bootstraps. We lack the conviction. We lack the power. We lack the consistency of life to bring this to pass. That's another thing that comes with age is the recognition of the number of times I've said, I'm going to get this right next time. And I realize that God humbles me yet again to to help me realize that apart from abiding in the vine and depending on him, I have no hope. But in him, I have every hope because he is our strength and he is our refuge and he is our rest. And beloved, take heart. He is in us both to will and to work and work we will because of that. And in time, what he has started, he will surely complete. 
Well, we're out of time. Look to the last part of verse 13. Note that it says that all of this is for his good pleasure. Just what he said in John 15. God is pleased with your spiritual growth. God is pleased as you labor to work out what he is working in. That is our ambition to be pleasing to him and God is in fact glorified by the fruit of your life, believe it or not, because he is the one who has caused the growth. Did you labor? Yes, but only in conjunction with his willing and working in your life. And therefore, he, in the end, receives all the glory for all of this. So let me ask you in these final moments, beloved, listen, is God at work in you? Examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. What does Paul say in in 2 Corinthians 13? Examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. He says you should be able to look in the mirror and see Jesus. You should see a growing and increasing likeness to Christ. That's the only test. Is Christ being born out of your life? If so, I would encourage you, as Paul has, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. As you see the grace of God demonstrated in your life, let that well up within you with gratitude and extol him for his work. Thank him, depend on him, pursue him in the word and in prayer. And brother and sister, you watch what he will do in your life. Rejoice in the good work. Enjoy him. And when you struggle and you stumble and you fall into temptation, remember who you are, small. Remember who he is, substantial enough and sufficient enough to cover all of your sins where sin abounds, grace all the more and take that next step to confess your sin and to rest, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. He will cleanse you. That's all part of his working in you, that you repent and trust him. He does not cast us off. Day by day, he just continues his work. Jesus is a faithful Savior. And friend, this morning, if you're on the outside looking in, if you've never come to Christ for life, if you're still bound in your sins and you are hoping that in the end God will accept you on on account of your own goodness, I tell you, the Bible says he will not. You must come to Christ if you want life. And the Bible teaches that Jesus alone, that God alone is good, that there is none righteous, no, not one. And the hope that we have, and it is a sure hope, is to go to God for that mighty work in our lives. Have you even come to him to ask? He will abundantly pardon. That is the promise of scriptures. Humble yourself before the Lord. Turn from any hope in yourself and lean on the cross of Christ because that's what it's there for. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, how can we thank you enough that you have given us newness of life, that you have called us righteous on account of your righteous life, that you have forgiven all of our sins, that you have given us the helper who has come to abide with us so that we might abide in you and that we might produce fruit because you have borne it out by your will and your working in us. Thank you for being such a great savior. We thank you, Lord, for your mercy toward us. 
And I pray this morning, Lord, for any who are still sitting on the fence and still resting in themselves, that, Lord, you would open their eyes to their need, that you might bring them through Christ to faith and repentance, and, Lord, that you might give them life. Jesus, you have said that you came that we might have life and have it abundantly, and surely we have known that. And so we give you praise and thanks, and we ask, Lord, in our own need and in our own weakness that you might work still more and more in us, that we might bear out fruit to the glory of your name. Amen.